This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad within it. I'm Pastor Murphy. We here, the members and friends of the Great Little Zion Baptist Church, welcome you to our worship experience and pray that as you view this moment, your soul will be encouraged, your faith will be built, and you will leave this moment encouraged and empowered and ready to run on to see what God has in store for you. Be blessed as the music uplifts you and the word empowers you in Jesus' name. Welcome to our worship experience. We'd like to dedicate this election to those choir members in Mayor that have passed on.
Good morning, family, friends, and guests. Here are our weekly announcements. Please join us on Wednesday at 6 p.m. for our prayer meeting and at 7.30 p.m. for our virtual adult Bible study. We also ask you to join us for our adult and young adult and youth Sunday schools on the weekends, Saturdays at 10 a.m. for our youth and young adults and Sundays at 8.30 a.m. for our adults. Make sure that you submit your scholarship committee applications for all of the graduates for the year of 2020. Please check the announcements for the contact information. We hope that you have a blessed, wonderful Sunday and enjoy the rest of your day. says 
Psalm 27 and 13. David said, I had fainted, lest I believe to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. But what we've come to understand and know is that even when it doesn't look good, it works for the good. For all those that are called according to his purpose. Y'all help me say, it's all good. This is the day that the Lord has made. Of course, let us rejoice and be glad within it. Would you join me this morning once again in our Joseph narrative, which is going to take a tremendous shift for us, is going to lead us into a space. I'm certain if you've never read the story before, you never anticipated this. But in Genesis chapter 39, we're going to begin reading at verse 11 and conclude at verse 23. Genesis chapter 39, verses 11 through 23. Get your Bibles, if you will, and join me as I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version this morning. Genesis chapter 39, verses 11 through 23. Here's the word of the Lord. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. 
And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to lie with me, and I screamed. And it came about when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, the Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to make me, to make a sport of me. And it happened as I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now it came about when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me that his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the jailer, chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatsoever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made him prosperous. Today I want to preach from the subject, it wasn't supposed to turn out like this. It wasn't supposed to turn out like this or it wasn't supposed to turn out this way. It wasn't supposed to turn out this way. When the episodes of verses 11 and 12 occurred, I can only imagine that Joseph felt both relieved and redeemed for he had escaped the clutches of temptation. He had proven that his commitment to God was true and he discovered his internal strength to resist evil. He was able to celebrate that in his life, evil did not have the last word. Evil did not triumphant over him. In fact, he looked temptation in the face, says verse 10, chapter 39, day after day and came away victorious. For what some scholars say, for the next 11 years, Joseph was victorious in dealing with the temptation that came from Potiphar's wife. Day after day, he walked victoriously. And you and I might can sense and agree and can identify with the feelings of Joseph when you finally recognize that the nagging temptation that was meant to harm you, that was meant to hinder you, that was meant to disconnect you, that was meant to rattle you, that was ultimately meant to destroy you did not accomplish its intent. But instead, you are now encouraged and empowered and you have the envisioned idea in your spirit to see that sin is not stronger than the salvation you lay claim to. Some might suggest that Joseph may have celebrated prematurely 
or perhaps he had become too comfortable and lessened his defense prematurely as well. I'm not sure I can agree with that conclusion, but let me further suggest that it's never harmful to praise God prematurely. In fact, at every victory in life, you need to shout before and during the victory. It's sort of a pre-celebration to assure and to affirm and to say publicly that I believe what this is is going to come to pass. With all of that said, though, don't underestimate when we get to verse 11 a single phrase in this verse. Don't underestimate the phrase one day. That phrase suggests and warns how life changes, how circumstances change. What is good today could change by the time you get to the same time tomorrow. That one day phrase could mean the difference between life and death, both mortally and spiritually. One day we were lost for eternity and then one day we were saved for all eternity. One day on a cross provided a change trajectory for whosoever will let him come and one day arguably impacted Joseph's life like never before. How? Because in that one day, things transitioned. Or should I say, one day, things transitioned. One day, God promoted his life from being of slave status to now being of privileged status. You know that feeling, don't you? When God transitioned your life from one state of status to the next. One day, God transformed Joseph's life. God promoted his life once again from the slave status to a privileged status. God transitioned him from a pit of death to a place of freedom. God, in that one day, transitioned Joseph's life. God, in one day, transformed Joseph's life. But God also one day permitted tribulation to come into Joseph's life. One day doing the right thing, being an obedient servant to God, following the rules, embracing his favor, living his expected future, honoring the boundaries of his life, believing in his convictions that he had in God, all of one day shifted his life and set in motion his demotion from the palace to the prison. But how could that be? Better yet, we've got to say the way Joseph's narrative has come thus far, it wasn't supposed to turn out this way. I mean, Joseph says, I'm supposed to be blessed for doing the right thing. Do we not have that same conclusion when we encounter these moments for doing right, for being obedient, for being faithful, and then all of a sudden things turn out totally different 
than what we anticipated. In fact, they turn the very opposite. They turn out like they end up being evil or in attack against us. It's almost as if you can hear the scripture crying out and there is yet no fulfillment. Remember the words carefully. Observe the decrees, commands of God with all your heart and your soul, says Deuteronomy 26, 16. Joseph said, I did that. I said, I've done that. Obedience to the word of God promises a prosperous and successful journey. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. Joseph did that. I have done that. Haven't you and I remembered the words that come from Deuteronomy 5, 29? Those promises that it will go well with me and my children if I walk in obedience. I've done that. Joseph argued, I've done that too, but it wasn't supposed to work out like this. What happened? Joseph's entire life ships one day when he goes to work as he had done in the previous days of the 11 years and this one day, everything changed. But that's not abnormal. That's not unusual. In fact, the narrative clearly tells us that the opposite can always happen whether you anticipate it or not. In fact, I would underscore the words of Rabbi Harold Kushner who says bad things do happen to good people. Remember Job, remember Jesus, remember Martin Luther King Jr., remember Malcolm X, remember Metgar Evers, remember Eric Garner, remember George Floyd, remember Trayvon Martin, remember Breonna Taylor, the list goes on and on. Bad things certainly do happen to good people. And it certainly is an unfair outcome when the opposite is the fruit of sowing good seed. Maybe at this point, after running away from Mrs. Potiphar's intentionalities to destroy or to be promiscuous with Joseph and he leaves behind his garment maybe Joseph goes back to some sacred place or some special place and begins to contemplate in his mind man I wonder if I did the right thing I wonder if I should have just yielded because nobody would have ever known my family is way on the other side of the Sinai Peninsula since I am a dignified slave, my body still doesn't belong to me and sexual promiscuity is a daily part of slave mentality or slave holding houses. Giving in to Mrs. Potiphar could have boasted perhaps, says Joseph, in my imagination, my career. Maybe I could have catapulted to another level with Pharaoh, a little, strict, a little strategic adultery could have helped me. It could have been a thought in Joseph's mind. And yet, Joseph should have anticipated the day was coming. A day will come when Mrs. Potiphar, as she has always done, will never give up. 
but he just might be caught at a very weak moment. How could he not avoid going to work? He can't do his job unless he goes to work. There was no virtual space in which to work, no email in which to communicate with his workers, so he had to show up in that physical space. He had to enter only to know that in that one day, Mrs. Potiphar obviously intensified her efforts. She stepped up her game, and that's what sin does. It intensifies in the life of the pursuer when that pursuer can't capture what's being pursued. That's what haters do. That's what envy does. It increases its sensitivity, its intensity. Some of you can reflect on what it means to do the right thing only to have the scenario work out the opposite. It wasn't supposed to turn out the way that it did and perhaps Joseph has wandered like us. God, what happened to the dreams that you promised me? Remember you said that I would be a ruler? And Joseph, like you and I, perhaps have been left to deal with the question, does godliness really pay? Is it really worth missing out on the instant moment of gratification or promotion just to be obedient to the God of your salvation? Mrs. Potiphar has taken her disappointment in passion and turned it into hate. She used the garment that Joseph left behind to make it appear that he was quietly and yet aggressively going to create a crime. He's guilty of it, she says. Arguably, for some 11 years, Joseph had escaped those temptations, but remember that phrase, but it happened one day that changed his life. Even though he never did anything wrong, it changed his life. And Mrs. Potiphar set in motion her form of retribution, of punishment to Joseph because he refused her advances. And what does she do? The Bible says, beginning in verse 12 through 14, that she first appealed to those who worked with Joseph. Now, you would think that these persons would be the very first to step up. But notice the text says, no one is in the house. Where are they? Who dismissed them? Why would they not be there? They should be there for security purposes. They should be there for servant purposes. They should never leave Mrs. Potiphar unattended. Even if she commands them to leave, they can never vacate the premises outside of the, of the command of the Pharaoh or Potiphar. And yet, they left the house. If at least they were not in close proximity. Listen to what the Bible says in verse 12. She caught him by his garment. Lie with me, she said. He left his garment in her side, in her hand, and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left the garment, 
fed outside, she called to the men of her household and said, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me. And what happened? I screamed. Mrs. Potiphar first appears, or should I say appeals to those who would best know Joseph. And the text doesn't even tell us, but I would assume they had no reaction at all. They had absolutely no suggestion as to whether or not they were going to stand up and fight for Joseph. Instead, they said nothing. Amazingly, I think they said nothing because in order to collaborate Mrs. Potiphar's story, they could not say anything. They forgot their loyalty to Joseph. Secondly, observe that Mrs. Potiphar was a good liar. She told lies very well, a very skilled liar, in the words of Robert Adler. He says she had this, she's a, a subtle mistress of syntactic equivocation. She knew how to fit a lie in a situation very well. As I said earlier, she tailored her first lies to enlist the servant's support, and then she altered them later to entice her husband. Earlier, Potiphar had left, remember, earlier Potiphar had left all that he had in Joseph's hand. That's what verse 6 says. Now, Joseph's garment is in Mrs. Potiphar's hand. The first testified to Potiphar's trust of Joseph, but the second, the garment in Mrs. Potiphar's hand, testified of Joseph's faithfulness to Potiphar. See, catch it. Joseph would rather leave his garment than to have himself left with Mrs. Potiphar because Joseph was a good man. Never mind, the second the scorned woman, I should say, assembled the men of the household and protested falsely. See, he's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me and I cried out loud. And as soon as he heard that I lifted my voice and I cried out, he left this garment beside me and fed outside the house. All of her lies were laced with prejudicial subtleties to elicit their wrath. For example, watch the text. Notice she identified Joseph as a Hebrew. That could have very easily provoked and evoked their national xenophobia. You see, because they had a fear, Egyptians had a fear of strangers and foreigners. And can you imagine when she calls him a Hebrew? They would be setting in their mind that certainly he's guilty if she said so. Remember the many African-American men who died because someone lied on them? I'm thinking of the Scottsdale's boys, Scottsboro boys. I'm thinking of Emmett Till, a lie. And it's bought because of the color of their skin, their nationality, 
their ethnicity, and she identifies the Hebrew nature of Joseph, knowing that those servants would side with her in a very xenophobia kind of spirit. Here's what she said, the Hebrew servant whom you brought among us, she would later tell her husband, came in. Look what she did. She takes Joseph's robe, garment, lays beside her and says, the Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled the house. Verse 17 and 18. Notice the Hebrew is now a Hebrew servant or a Hebrew slave. Because once again, in the Egyptian's eye, to be attacked by a Hebrew was bad enough. But to be attacked by a Hebrew slave, now that, that just wasn't tolerated. That was worse. And Mrs. Potiphar implied that Potiphar was partially responsible for the assumed attack on her himself. Look at what she says. This Hebrew whom you brought among us, hoping, I believe, that her husband would be shamed and likewise would shame him into rage. And it did. She also altered the language when she said, first of all, she said, the Hebrew, you brought him in, he laughed at us. Then she changed it to, he laughed at me. Read the text. And she did that to underscore her own personal devastation. <laughs> As one scholar has suggested, no wonder Miss Mr. Potiphar stayed away for long periods of time. But the text gives us an awful conclusion. Awful. Because verse 19 says that whenever Mr. Potiphar heard what Mrs. Potiphar has said, verse 20 says, Joseph's master took him, put him into jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in jail. It wasn't supposed to work out that way. But isn't it something? That's the way it worked out. So I'm left to wrestle with a few questions and that question is really how how do you handle these situations when they work out opposite of what you anticipated? Joseph now is in prison. Mrs. Potiphar's lies has worked to some extent. Apparently Potiphar was not completely convinced though that his wife was telling the truth. Otherwise he would have ordered Joseph's execution. I think that he said what he said in terms of putting him in the prison because he did not want to engage in an argument with Mrs. Potiphar. He certainly did not believe, I don't think, in the depths of his heart that Joseph had violated any such boundaries. For remember, this is the same man that had placed everything that he owned in Joseph's hand and worried about nothing except his own wife. And even in that moment, Things still went wrong 
it turned against Joseph. Yet Potiphar imprisoned Joseph out of necessity, leaving Joseph alive, I believe, to see how much more information will come to light. I think Potiphar said it will kill me to put him in there because this is my number one man, but, but I, I've, I've got to not only appease Mrs. Potiphar, but I've got to appease those who are observing, so I'm just going to put him into my prison, and when I put him there, I want him to hang out there until more information come to light. I'm not going to talk anymore about what happens when he gets to prison because that's a, that's a sermon for next week. But here's what I want us to wrestle with. What happened to Joseph, it wasn't supposed to turn out that way. And I want to know, what do I do when that happens to me? Let me make a few suggestions. Keep in mind, another motive was at work beyond Joseph's control. Keep that in mind. Another motive was at work beyond Joseph's control. Joseph went to work to simply do his job, not knowing always to the fullest extent what's going on in the mind of Mrs. Potiphar. Certainly he knew that she wanted to be intimate, to be sexual with him, but he's busy trying to do his work. And for 11 years, possibly, he beat this thing. Why would he be concerned? Well, when people have other motives, you can't control another person's motive in terms of what they're going to do. And so there was another motive at work that Joseph had absolutely no control over. Nothing. The only thing he could have done to change Mrs. Potiphar's motive was to sleep with her. And he had made it clear he wasn't going to do that. Also keep in mind, there were circumstances beyond Joseph's control. Remember what verse 11 said? He went into the house to do his work, and the men of the household were not in there. Once again, where did they go? Who sent them away? Why do I ask that question? Because if anyone should have dismissed them, it should have been Joseph. And where were they? Certainly, I think his suspicion probably was heightened, wondering where was everybody at? How could you abandon your posts? What's going on? Is there a threat to Mrs. Potiphar? But that circumstance was beyond Joseph's control. He had no way of knowing that Mrs. Potiphar would set this thing up. And in your own situation, you don't always know what people are going to do. Remember how people work behind the scenes? They work in secrecy. They work to your demise. They have their own little meetings. They do. I've seen all kind of things happen, particularly in church life. People will work in an interesting way to try to humiliate or degrade or some way have a person removed. We do that in church, which is the reason why church is one of the most destructive places you can occupy as an individual. Because there are circumstances beyond our control when people don't like what you say or what you do. And in Joseph's case, she did not like his resistance to her advances. And they may not like the way you are resisting their temptations to do something unethical, immoral, to do something that would ruin your own integrity. 
There's another thing to keep in mind. Accusations find footage in whom they can best convey and persuade. I learned that the hard way. I learned a few years ago in a legal case that it's not so much of providing the truth in the case. It really isn't. It's really about who can you best persuade, the judge or the jury. Because accusations can gain momentum, and when they gain momentum with the right people, whether there's truth or not, whatever they want their objective to be, they will labor to make that come to pass. And you have to understand that when people create accusations, they're going to find people who can carry their bones. Now, there, there may be some truth that's been always said. If a person will carry a bone, they'll bring a bone. There's probably some truth to that. That's just an analogous way of saying that if a person can take some gossip, they'll bring some gossip back. That's probably true. But the bottom line is, false accusations can find footage in persons that it can greatly persuade and influence. And in Joseph's case, Mrs. Potiphar persuaded Mr. Potiphar. And the verdict for Joseph was a sentence moving from the palace to the prison. So what are the lessons I want to tell you that I think we can learn from this Joseph's unfortunate experience? Where here's, here's it, number one. Accept that you won't always know the reasons why things turned out the way they did. You won't always know. There are some things that happened to me across the 20 years of pastoring this church. I can never tell you why they happened that way, and I've yet to even hear or discover the inkling, but it happened. And that's the way it is in life sometimes. Things happen like that, and you'll never know why sometimes. Who did it? Why they did it? All you know is the outcome was perhaps either a hurt to you or a ruin to you. But the sad thing is we have to accept the fact that you will not always know why things turn out the way they did. Job learned that lesson. In fact, Job says in Job 42.3, Surely uh, I thought of the things I do not understand. And that's life. Here's the second thing. Whatever you do, don't plead with God to rush you through this period. <laughs> now that may sound strange, but even though it turned out the way that it did, don't try to rush to get through it merely because in doing so, you might miss some very valuable lessons or some very valuable information slash evidence to lead you to who did it, why they did it, and how you can avoid it in the future. It turned out that way. It happened. Work to move beyond it, 
but don't ask God to hurry up and get me through this because it's too painful. Huh? Remember what he tells the Apostle Paul in the second Corinthian letter when Paul wants this thorn removed three times and God says it's not going to happen. My grace is sufficient. In fact, in your weakness, your greatest strength is elevated. See, when they meant to destroy you, here you are still here, still practicing, still alive, still thriving, still prosperous. When they thought that in what they did would bring you down, zap the life out of you, you're still standing and you're standing tall because you recognize I may not get out of this for a while. This thing may continue on. In fact, it may intensify, but I'm going to trust that God's going to teach me the lessons. I'm going to learn the lessons and I'm going to be victorious in this thing somehow, some way. So, so far, I think the lessons to learn is, remember, you have to accept the fact that you won't always know why things turn out the way they did. Secondly, don't plead with God to rush you through this period. But thirdly, accept that difficulties are inevitable. They're going to come. I, certainly, Joseph didn't anticipate this, but it's going to happen. Them dark days, them hard days, those difficult moments, they're going to come. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I think it was, in this world you will have tribulation, hard time, difficulty, struggle, but be of good cheer. It's going to happen. I would highly suggest that you try to avoid them as much as you can, but check this out. Sometimes you're not going to be able to avoid them. They're going to find you. And you got to deal with them. You are going to have difficulty because it turned out the way that it did. Number four, see this as an obstacle to overcome. I got that from reading Helen Keller who said something that it took me a while to grasp it because I'm a very, I'm a, I'm, I'm very much opposed to what's described in theological language, redemptive suffering. I don't think you have to suffer to be redeemed. But here's what she says. Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experiences of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, vision cleared, ambition inspired, and success achieved. And that's exactly what she's suggesting in all of those words at the end. That redemption, the salvation experience, deliverance will require some suffering. I struggle with that. But then I'm always led to the fact that you certainly cannot have a resurrection unless somebody dies. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. And without Sunday... You can't get there until you go through Friday. So see this moment that it didn't work out the way that it should have as an obstacle to overcome. Here's another point. Analyze the situation and focus on actionable steps. 
Don't just stand back and do like many of us have been taught to do. Just pray about it and let the Lord work it out. No, no, you, you need to put some effort in motion. You need to find out what you need to do to maneuver yourself in the forward progress. Yes, I'm going to believe that God's going to handle whatever it is God's going to handle, but I got to do something. Israel would never get to the promised land unless they marched. They had to cross a Red Sea. They had to come through a wilderness. They had to go through a long wilderness of 38 plus years. You, you got to do something. You got to take actionable steps. You just can't pray about it and leave it right there. I'm always amazed at folk who say that. Just pray about it. No, you got to do something. You got to be tangible and realistic about things in life. In every setback, it said, there are going to be things that can't be reversed. That's the thing I wanted to push as well. Some of these things, you're not going to be able to reverse them or change them. This phrase is not as popular, but it, it, it's true. It, it, it is what it is now. It's already in motion. You can't reverse it. You want to focus on things that can still be changed, that's salvageable versus things that have already happened and can't be changed. And the only time the situation changes when you take steps to improve and walk through your situation because you can't cry over spilt milk. One more and then I'm done. Realize that there are others in this world around you who face the same thing too, if not similar. Although frustrating, although frustrations, uh, you may not be alone. In fact, you're not alone. Millions of others have and are experiencing the same kind of condition. Know this, it's not just you, but others are experiencing and have experienced what you are experiencing. And that should help you get out of what I call self-victimizing mindset. Others have experienced life where it didn't turn out the way that they thought it would. It wasn't supposed to turn out like that. But I'm convinced trust in this Joseph story and in these steps, it can at least help us manage and handle what to do when things don't turn out the way that we thought they're going to turn out. Let's pray together. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that someone today who may be in this predicament would come to a space to recognize, Lord, that weeping may endure for the night, but there is coming a joy in the morning. Work in their midst, God, and strengthen them and help them to recognize that even though things did not work out the way they intended and it worked opposite of their being obedient children, assure them that victory is on their side and that they keep on doing the right thing in Jesus' name. It didn't turn out the way it was supposed to, but there's always a resurrection to the newness of life. 
We trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the day that God has made, and I'm going to trust that from this word, somebody today, life is going to be revolutionized and changed because someone's in this very predicament. And I pray that those steps that I gave you at the end, God is going to use them to catapult your life to a new dimension and give you a fresh approach to handling situations that don't turn out the way you believe they're going to. I also pray that if there's someone who receives Jesus Christ today as Lord and Savior, you would rejoice, celebrate, for we are going to celebrate with you. We are grateful to God that your life today will begin afresh in Jesus' name. We are grateful for all of those who constantly support this ministry, and we constantly encourage you keep supporting us. We appreciate the opportunity to stand and to share in the good news and trust that all that we're saying, somebody across the airways on this Sunday morning is going to be blessed in a mighty way. So we encourage you to have a blessed, wonderful week in the Lord. And always remember, God loves you and so do I. Be blessed as God will bless your spirit and encourage your soul in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen.